Well, church family, it's already been a joy to worship with you in this service, worship and singing, worship and taking communion. Now we, we turn to feast on the Word of God. I invite you to turn again to John chapter 4. While you're turning, I'll allow our kids, children's church age, to be dismissed for children's church this morning. We return to Jesus and the woman at the well today, and as we come back into this story, we are going to also see not just those two within the story, but also the disciples and the entire Samaritan town, or much of the town, I should say. Last week, I said something like, everybody worships. Everybody worships something. It's not if we'll worship, it is what we will worship. Well, I have an example of that. In the real estate section of the May 11 edition of the Wall Street Journal, there's an article with this headline, The Disney-obsessed shell out millions for homes inside the exclusive Florida community. It's about this Golden Oak neighborhood, which is the only residential area on Walt Disney Resort property. The article closed with a quote from Kevin Tupi, who bought a home in this neighborhood in 2019 for $5.5 million. Just in case you're shopping in that area, there's a price tag for you. But here is how this article closed he said Disney is more of a religion we worship the mouse it's not if we will worship it is what and I can tell you this you might have fun at Disney for a few days but Mickey Mouse will never bring ultimate satisfaction to the human soul. People need Jesus. We live in a world where people desperately need Jesus. And we, the church, are equipped with a gospel message. We glorify God and make disciples. And we have neighbors. Likely we have family members. Likely we have co-workers or friends or those that are places of play who are worshiping something it's not Jesus, and they des- desperately need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the theme of our sermon this morning is very simple. The world needs its Savior. The world needs its Savior. I invite you, if you're able, to stand and honor the reading of God's Word. I'm going to begin in verse 27 of chapter 4 and read through verse 42 this morning. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes 
and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Father, we, we should have heavy hearts that there is a world out there that will worship anything and everything. And every object of worship is so inferior to the right object of worship that we can't even put it in the same ballpark. So, Father, I pray for your people this morning. I pray that you would equip your people with gospel urgency and gospel compassion so that when we walk out these doors today, we'll recognize we are entering into a mission field, and we'll take the good news of Jesus Christ, the only one who can satisfy our souls for all eternity, to a world that is lost, to a world that desperately needs good news, to a world that is right now under the wrath of God and needs to hear good news that there is a Savior, one Savior, one Mediator, who forgives their sin and gives eternal life. God, put that in your people today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in this account of Jesus and the woman at the well, we've seen and heard or read some iconic words from Jesus in his interaction with this woman. Back in verse 10, he said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you'd have asked him and he would have given you living water. Very familiar words to us. And then in verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Very well known. There's another notable statement from Jesus in this account that we may not know as well, though. And that is verse 34. Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In other words, what brought strength to Jesus' soul, what nourished him, was doing the will of God. Here are the disciples. They knew Jesus was tired and hungry. He stayed at the well. They went in town to get food. After the woman leaves, his disciples are begging him to eat something. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Now, if I put myself in the place of one of the disciples, I'm thinking exactly what they are. Who brought him food? They're only on the level of physical food. And we've seen that often in these last two chapters, those who are only on the level of of the, the physical. We saw in the interaction with Nicodemus, Jesus said, you must be born again, meaning spiritual birth. Nicodemus is only thinking in physical terms. He's thinking of physical birth. 
Well, Jesus had told this lady about her need for living water, by which he means eternal life, salvation. She's only thinking of H2O. Now the disciples, Jesus says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And they're thinking, well, who brought him a burger? Where did he get this food? And Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This brings joy and strength and fuel to his soul, doing God's will. Now, Jesus must be hungry physically. His disciples go in town getting food. He must be hungry. And you all know what it's like. I can tell you, in our house, when we get hungry, we get hangry. It might be true in your house as well. We, when we get hungry, we tend to have a shorter fuse. We may say things we don't say otherwise, except we're hungry. In fact, Snickers built an entire ad campaign around that reality, right? You're not you when you're hungry. You may recall some of those commercials. There's one where Aretha Franklin is in the, the back of a car with, with, with these younger guys, and it, the, the feature is her kind of being a diva. And one of them, you know, one of the guys just says they're acting that way because you're hungry, and the bite of the Snickers bar turns it back to just one of the other guys on the road trip. Well, we, we know this, this thought, you're not you when you're hungry. Well, that could not be said of Jesus. Jesus could not have been featured in that Snickers ad campaign. His physical hunger didn't drive him. It didn't determine what he was going to do. Remember back when Jesus, he's tempted by Satan in the wilderness. He has fasted for 40 days. He is physically hungry. Satan tempts him with turning stones into bread. And Jesus, in Matthew 4, 4, he quotes the Old Testament, he quotes Deuteronomy, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God's word strengthens him, nourishes him, fuels him. So we go back into this account with this woman. Yes, he's hungry, but it's doing the will of God that fuels him. Now you might be able to relate on some level. Maybe you've had a, a work assignment or a school project that you're on a roll and, and maybe you were hungry, but you just kept kind of rolling through that to, to finish that project. You're your hunger to finish the project maybe drove you through it. Jesus had a, a bigger hunger than for physical bread that day. His fuel was doing God's will. But it wasn't just this day. It wasn't just this one 24-hour period where Jesus was like that. His life was fueled by doing the will of God. John 6, 38. He says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So in this light, the, the bread that the disciples bring back from this town could not give Jesus the same satisfaction as doing his father's will. Pleasing God nourished him so much that his physical hunger took a back seat. Now, Ultimately, Jesus does his Father's will by going to the cross. 
immediately here in this account, the doing of the Father's will is to show this Samaritan woman and then this town that he is the Savior of the world. So in this account, the Father's will is that many in this Samaritan town hear about Jesus and believe. Now last week we saw two times in two verses, verses 23 and 24, that true worship is in spirit and truth. Now what can get lost in that is this statement by Jesus in there where he says, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Love this picture of the Father seeking worshipers. So as we take this, and we've been in this account for three weeks now, as we take a big picture of you, it's God's, peop- uh, God's will, God's purpose that people do worship in spirit and truth. And there's a town that desperately needs to do that. And there's a town here that's going to do that. And so Jesus willingly, gladly skips a meal so that wayward people can be turned into worshiping people. So that's what's going on in this account. Now with that, let's go back to a sentence <coughs> Excuse me, at the start of this story. Now it may, may seem very minor to you. And we haven't talked about it, I don't think, in the past couple of weeks. But all the way back in verse 4, John says of Jesus, and he had to pass through Samaria. That may not sound like much. It may sound like saying, hey, if, if you're going down to Gulfport today, you have to pass through Wiggins. You know, no big deal, right? It's, it's a city on the way. If you're... If you're going down to the coast, you're probably going to go through there. But Samaria to the Jews wasn't the same as Wiggins to us. Samaria was full of, catch this, Samaritans. But those Samaritans were people that the Jews despised. Now some Jews did travel through Samaria. It was the shortest route and they would go through there. It was either there or they would go through Gentile towns nearby, and Jews weren't big fans of Gentiles at this time. But here's what I imagine. I imagine that when Jews went through Samaria, they were metaphorically holding their nose as they went through there. They didn't like Samaritans. They were prejudiced against them. I can imagine that even when the disciples went into the town to buy food, that they're looking around at the Samaritan people with disdain. They don't like them. They're looking down on them. So I think the reason Jesus had to pass through Samaria is because it is the will of God to save this woman and many in this town. And folks, God seeking worshipers from every people group, from every color, from every language, from every tribe, from every nation. Jesus' food was to do the will of God. May we have that same gospel-driven compassion, that same gospel conviction that we want people to become worshipers in spirit and in truth, which leads to the telling of the good news about Jesus. So here we are when this woman has taken in a lot of words and concepts from Jesus. So she goes 
back to her townspeople. When she does, Jesus is left alone for a few moments with the disciples before this town comes down. So in verses 34 to 38, Jesus is teaching his disciples. And this is so important. But I think what he's doing here is he's teaching them that his food needs to become their food. And by effect for us, our food. In fact, the my and my food is stressed. He's saying, my passion is to do the will of God. And he can see Samaritans apart from God. And they need the Savior. And what needs to happen is the disciples need to see Samaritans as needing the Savior Jesus. So he, he says to them in this way, Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Jesus is using an agricultural metaphor. About the soonest to reap a harvest after you've sown or planted it is about four months. I can remember when I was 15, I worked my cousin's farm with him. And in western Kentucky, some of the major crops there were tobacco, corn, beans. But nobody planted corn one day and thought, we're going to be eating corn on the cob tomorrow night from their own crop, right? Nobody thinks that way. That's not how it works. Plant the corn, wait several months, you eventually get some corn. Some of you probably planted some gardens. None of you went out and planted tomatoes and thought the next day you're going to go out there and harvest some tomatoes. We know that's not how it works. There is a gap between the sowing, the planting, and the reaping. That's how it is in agriculture. But it, Jesus is taking that agricultural metaphor and flipping it on its head in spiritual terms with his coming. Now in the kingdom of God, the sowing and the reaping are happening at the same time. He's saying, look, the harvest is here. People are coming to me. Normally it's four months, but, but look, we're, we're writing paychecks to those who are reaping. Why? They're at work. It's speculated that the phrase white for harvest may be a reference to townspeople from Samaria coming dressed in white clothing to hear from Jesus. So I want you to think about what we've observed already in the last couple of chapters. In chapter 3, verse 15, it is said that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That wasn't limited to Jewish people. Samaritans, if they hear and believe, they too get eternal life. What's shocking in this account is immediately it's not Nicodemus, the Pharisee, the teacher of Israel, who gets it. He seems to leave with a lack of understanding. But this village of Samaritans, they're coming. So as they're coming... Jesus, even in verses 37 to 38, turns it back on his disciples. Hey, there's, there's an urgent message that people need. It is time to sow, folks. It's time to reap. Disciples, you've got work to do. Join in this harvest. We too must have gospel urgency. 
Think about that term, urgency. For me, I get frustrated when I, I look, I like to watch, I like to watch sports. And when I'm watching some of my favorite teams play sports, I get frustrated when there's a need for urgency, but the team's not showing urgency. Maybe it's the, the end of a football game. And your team's behind, they need to rush to the line of scrimmage and get the playoff. But they just kind of dawdle up there and waste most of the play clock. Where, where's the urgency, right? Or, or if it's in basketball and they need to rush the ball up the floor, but, but they're kind of loafing. I mean, where is the urgency? Jesus is calling his disciples, and by effect us, to a gospel urgency. Paul Chitwood, the head of the International Mission Board for the Southern Baptist Convention, has, he said this so many times at last year's annual meeting. I'm sure he said it many times since then. He says 154,937 people die each day apart from Christ. So today, 154,000 plus people will die face the judgment of God. Church, we must realize the urgency of our message. Charles Spurgeon was quoted as saying, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Just let that soak in a little bit. Now, he's not saying everybody should go across oceans. But we are sent ones with a message. Gospel urgency. But it's also a joyful gospel urgency. The conversion of any sinner to Jesus Christ glorifies God. It changes their destiny. But you know there is little greater joy than seeing someone put their faith in Jesus, move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. It's interesting that when Jesus shows that sowing and reaping are compressed together and it's all happening now, he does so in terms of joy. In verse 36b, sower and reaper may rejoice together. Now, I haven't done a ton of farming in a long time. But there's not a lot of joy in sowing, I would think, in farming. It's hard work. You know there's not going to be much to show for it for months. So there's not a lot of joy there. But again, Jesus is turning this metaphor on its head. The sower and the reaper, they rejoice. Hear this from Psalm 126, verses 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. See that sowing, reaping, you see joy in there. Verse 38 implores the disciples. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. We're disciples enter into the labor of those who have sown. Well, who's he talking about? Like who's he mean is, is doing the sowing there? Well, it's thought that John the Baptist may have ministered near this area back in chapter 3, verse 23. But if you include John the Baptist really with all these Old Testament prophets who came, it's likely it's, it's all of them in view. They have 
sown the Word of God. They, they sown that Messiah is coming. And they, they did a lot of this sowing, and then Messiah is here. In John chapter 4, He is here. The Savior is here. And now it is time to reap that harvest of all that that was sown. Those guys probably didn't see a ton of fruit often, those, those prophets. But now think about the charge to the disciples and what happened. I mean, if you just read the book of Acts and the commission there in Acts 1.8, they're going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And we see that played out in this book, right? There's, there's very few believers here at the beginning of the, the book of Acts. Got about 120 folks gathered in an upper room. By the end of the book, the gospel has reached the capital, Rome. So many churches have been planted. So many people have become followers of Jesus. They are reaping. And now he's saying, even in this context in John 4, disciples, you, you haven't seen Samaria as your miss, mission field. You, you've missed it so far. But in, in the future... Make sure you see the world as your mission field. Take this message and share it with urgency. All right, well, what would make them share? What would make us share? Yes, a, a gospel urgency, but I think also a gospel compassion underneath that. In other words, Jesus' food, doing the Father's will, accomplishing him, His work, well, we're blown away by God's grace. I mean, the fact that Jesus saves me, the fact that Jesus saves you, and we didn't deserve it, everything we have is completely God's gift of grace. I know what I deserve. I deserved wrath. My sins, folks, they are many. I'm so thankful that His mercy is more. What I deserve was wrath, but what God gives me is mercy. He gives me grace. And when we understand that, we can see lost people who are facing God's judgment as those who desperately need Jesus and should move us to a, a compassion. When I was researching this passage, just a quick couple of sentences by a scholar just made me think about something I hadn't thought about, I don't think, ever in reading this passage. He brought out how the disciples had just got back from town. They had gone to town. They went back to town. All they came back with was food. And here is this woman. She goes to town, and she brings the people to Jesus. What, what a difference, right? And think about who she was. This lady was not winning popularity contests in Syker. In fact... She probably didn't care much for most of the town before this. She avoided the women in the town. They probably excluded her. They probably ridiculed her. Uh, her sin caused her to avoid them. And that's probably the topic of their ridicule for her. And notice what she brings out to them. It's her sin. This man told me everything I'd ever done. She doesn't mean everything that ever happened in her life. She means her sin. So with all that tension between her and the townspeople, where does this newfound compassion for them come from? She had an encounter with Jesus, folks. She had this encounter with the Savior 
of the world. And now she goes and she can tell others. I don't know of a greater strategy for evangelism. People whose lives have been radically changed by the Savior of the world see people around them differently. We know that the wages of sin is death. We know that unforgiven sin leads to the eternal judgment of God. We're convinced that there is one mediator between God and people, Jesus Christ. And we're certain that the only way people are going to be saved, reconciled to God, is by believing the truth about Jesus. So we're equipped with a message. No longer see people in a worldly way. We see them as those who need Jesus. So I guess the question is, can God use us? Can God use you? Can God use me? And maybe some of our excuses, well, I don't know enough. They don't know enough. In verse 29, this woman goes back to the town. I don't think she's even a, a, fully a believer at this point. She doesn't know a lot about Jesus, but what she does know, she tells. Well, maybe one of our excuses is, well, if, if you knew my past, maybe my, my past disqualifies me from telling people about Jesus. Well, the, the way that this entire town or whoever heard about Jesus in this town, the way they heard was from a Samaritan woman with a bad reputation telling them. Listen, there are many different strategies for sharing the gospel. The former church where I served, before I was a lead pastor, our church hosted a men's night. And we had professional athletes at our church and the hook for men who didn't normally attend church was to come and hear from a favorite athlete or from an athlete who was in that church. And these men faithfully shared their testimony about Jesus. And we'd have big crowds because of the athletes. And that doesn't surprise us. We live in a culture that's kind of like that. So we understand the strategy of drawing people with famous athletes. It can be used great, but also say that's not the normal way the gospel has been shared and spread for the last two millennia. The gospel usually spreads through the lips of everyday people who have a relationship with someone and can tell the good news about Jesus. I mean, that's what happens here in Syker. I don't know of a lot of church growth seminars where they'll tell you to find the person in the town with the worst reputation and use them as a springboard to citywide revival. That's what happens at Sychar. The town hears about Jesus through this one witness who is the former object of town gossip. Now she is the town witness. So church, may we have gospel compassion. May we have gospel urgency. Nobody's conversion is up to us. The job of the Holy Spirit is to work in people's hearts to produce faith in them, convict them of their sin, show them the truth about Jesus. We are just those who tell the message. This woman didn't know a lot. She just got people to Jesus. In verse 41, and many, and many more believe because of his word. Jesus shared with them. So this gospel we receive is gospel that we want to share. And I guess the question becomes, do we believe 
that God can save sinners of any stripe? Will we have gospel urgency? The Samaritans claim in verse 42, hear what they say. This is indeed the Savior of the world. Now we've seen this theme throughout John. Back in 129, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, God sent Jesus because he loved the world. Probably the most well-known verse in John's Gospel is 3.16, one of the best known anyway, anywhere in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Well, that term world refers to people opposed to God. And here in this chapter is these Samaritans looked down upon by most Jews, but those to whom Jesus goes, and they come to believe Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus saved Samaritans. Do we believe God can save any sinner? I know we lament the direction our culture is going often, and we should lament where we see sin. Not only where we see sin happening, but where we see sin celebrated. There should be lament in that. But I hope also in our lament, we also see opportunity for gospel witness. We know that sin never produces lasting peace. Sin does not produce joy. Sin produces misery. Full, everlasting joy is found only in Christ So misery from sin actually opens the door for gospel opportunities. I listen sometimes to a podcast by Albert Moeller called The Briefing, president of Southern Seminary. And a pastor wrote in and asked uh, just in the last couple of weeks, he said this, over the last few months I've been able to engage the mayor of my small town numerous times. However, the mayor is an openly homosexual woman. She's attended some of our church events and extended an invitation for me and my wife to come to her home. This has put me into somewhat into somewhat odd situation. I'm not sure how best to handle it. I've been fortunate to have prayed with the mayor and talked about my faith with her, yet it is clear that she does not believe her homosexuality is sinful. How would you advise me as a pastor to respond in this situation? Well, as he responded, Moeller showed how Jesus had table fellowship with lost people. In fact, Jesus was often criticized because he ate with sinners. And he said in most situations, it seemed like the right thing to do is to go to the dinner. Now go as a Christian, go with your convictions about the gospel, don't compromise, but go with a gospel compassion. He said this, if the line that is He said, rightly drawn, but he meant, if the line that is drawn says that you have no conversation with people who are known to you to be involved in this kind of sin or any other kind of pattern in sin, then that means that increasingly you're not going to have gospel conversations except with people who are already Christians. And that can't be faithfulness as defined by the New Testament. On Wednesday evening, at one point, I shared about the testimony of Rosaria Butterfield. I don't think I've done that here on a Sunday morning. 
Rosaria Butterfield is a pastor's wife. She's a homeschooling mom. She's written a book called The Gospel Comes with the House Key about Christian hospitality as an opportunity for gospel witness and gospel purposes. Well, that kind of gospel hospitality was crucial in her coming to Jesus. She was professor of English and women's study at Syracuse University and living an LGBTQ plus lifestyle. In fact, serving as advisor to that student group on campus, she wrote the policy for couples in that lifestyle for that university. Well, in that season, she was writing an article really against a Christian ministry, which led to a meeting with Ken Smith, a conservative Christian pastor, and he invited her to dinner with him and his wife. Now she said, going to dinner at the home of Christians was not high on my list of longed-for activities. She said she sat in her truck with her NARAL bumper sticker trying to work up the courage to knock on the door. But she also said that night was the first of hundreds of meals where they shared the love of Christ with her. They never approved of her lifestyle, but they did engage with her relationally. They kept showing love and speaking truth. And here's what she said. Nothing prepared me for the unstoppable gospel and for the love of Jesus, made manifest by the daily practices of hospitality undertaken in this one simple Christian home. This Christian home became my two-year refuge and way station. She came to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. God used a couple with patience, great gospel compassion, and great gospel conviction. Church, you may have missed, but Jesus stayed in this Samaritan village two more days. There would not have been a lot of Jewish people who would have encouraged that. In fact, they may have had a problem with that. A lot of the religious leaders would have had an issue with Jesus staying there two more days. But he knew they needed the Savior of the world. Who are you in relationship with that is lost? Who in your family, friends, or work associates? Who are you actively engaging with the gospel? I don't know the sin of all the people in your sphere of relationships, but I know this. The blood of Jesus Christ covers all sin. And I know this. There are hurting people, whatever their sin, that are not finding joy in it. The only true, full, lasting joy is found in Jesus Christ. Take the gospel with urgency into your sphere of relationships. That's a challenge. That's a challenge for me. It's a challenge for us. But I want you to think of it this way. It's almost lunchtime. You're hungry. I'm hungry. I have to say the end of the sermon because I can't say it at the beginning because that's what we're going to be thinking about food. You're hungry. I'm hungry. We're going to go to eat. I want you to pause in your meal. At some point, maybe just ask yourself, what's my food? I don't mean is it roast and carrots or sandwich or whatever. I mean, what is your primary food? What fuels you? Is it doing God's will? Is it the gospel of Jesus Christ? Who will love the lost in Dixie, Hattiesburg, 
and around the world? Is our food the will of God? Do we truly believe, as these Samaritans did, that Jesus is the Savior of the world? And if so, when you leave today, you're leaving to go into a mission field. Go with gospel compassion and gospel urgency. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you that it saved a wretch like me. Thank you that it saved so many in the last 2,000 years. And it will save lost people today. May we go with a gospel urgency and compassion. Fuel us with that, Lord. Fuel us with the desire for people to know Jesus. God, may it's a reminder about our, our ones. May we have new ones that we need to pray for regularly and look for opportunities to share the gospel. But in each Christian in this room, listening through another media outlet, may we be driven to utilize our relationships for gospel sharing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing?